So at the beginning of my sermon last week, I talked about how those that hold to a dispensational theology, how they use verse 19 from our chapter, chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, as the outline for the book. There's this old saying that's true concerning the Lord and the things of the Lord. That saying is this, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. But the funny thing is, is the man that drilled that into my head is a pastor who till this day still holds that the book of Revelation is an easy book to understand. Just follow that divine outline of verse 19. He is one of those that holds to a dispensational theology. What is dispensationalism? You may have heard that term before, and you could be wondering, what does it mean? You may be even wondering, am I a dispensationalist? I mean, that is a mighty fine multisyllabic word. What does it mean, though? Well, dispensationalism is a theological framework for reading and understanding the Bible that was developed by a man named John Nelson Darby. Darby was a Bible translator who died in 1882. And he's known for two specific things. The first is that he's one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren Church. But primarily, he's known because he is the man that came up with the biblical hermeneutic called dispensationalism. Again, this understanding of how to look at the manner that God has worked with man was not known until the late 1880s. And you may be wondering, does this even matter? Does it matter how you understand God working with humans? Or is this all just semantics? Well, it does matter, because at the heart of all of this is the gospel, the very character and nature of God. And as I explain what dispensationalism is, you may begin to see just how much of your own theological understanding of the Bible has been affected by this method of viewing Scripture. Again, a method that was unheard of less than 200 years ago. A method that all the apostles would have rejected, that none of the early church fathers held to, that the reformers would have jettisoned, but one that has in our day and age become the prevalent way of viewing God and how he works in his creation. So what is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism has four prongs to his theological understanding. The first and the main view to dispensationalism is that they view Israel and the church as two separate organisms. And because of this, God has two separate salvation plans in order, one for the church and one for ethnic Israel. Until dispensationalism came along, all theologians held that the church was true Israel. And this is what is called covenant theology. That God had made covenants, beginning with that eternal covenant as told to us in Hebrews 13.20, the covenant that was made within the triune God before the creation of the world, the covenant then, that was then spoken of the, on the heels of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the covenant that was then promised to Noah and then to Abraham and then to David, and the covenant that was fulfilled in the shedding of his son's blood. 
that way of understanding God, the relationship that he has with his creation, that way of understanding his character and the salvation is called covenant theology. And at the center of it is this one truth, that from the beginning, there's always been just one plan of salvation. Only one way to be part of the covenant. Only one true Israel of God. Darby had been taught that. And he said, no way, Jose. God's got two distinct plans for these two distinct people groups. And this then led to the second prong in dispensationalism, which is to see scripture as divided into dispensations. Darby didn't understand the redemptive work of God throughout the ages as flowing through and toward and in the eternal covenant made between the triune God. He said that God had, if you will, different racetracks for man to run on throughout the ages. Darby said that God had seven of them. And basically what, what God did is that he started man on one racetrack and had him run on that track until man sinned so egregiously that God couldn't take it any longer. And once man did that, then God would grab him up, set that man or set mankind on the next racetrack, line him up and say, go. And that would start the next dispensation. Now, dispensationalists don't always agree on the number of dispensations, but they all agree on this concept. That the basic idea that God deals with humanity in different ways as he's moved through the dispensations of scriptures. The seven dispensations that Darby came up were, are as follows. The first is the age of innocence, the dispensation of innocence. That was between the creation and the fall of man in the garden which brought about the second dispensation, that of conscience between the fall and the flood. Third dispensation was human government from the flood to Abraham. The fourth dispensation from Abraham to Moses. The fifth dispensation from Moses to Jesus, that's the dispensation of the law. And then the sixth dispensation, that of grace from Pentecost to the rapture which they call the church age. And then the final dispensation is the dispensation of the kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ that begins with his second coming. That's how they viewed God working with humanity. The third prong to dispensationalism is how they read Scripture. They read Scripture literally. They say that when you read the Bible, you're to take a literal approach to what is being said. And this includes, and it's especially important when you get to prophecy and apocalyptic literature. That sounds right, doesn't it? We should strive to hold to a literal understanding or hermeneutic of Scripture. Sounds right, but it isn't. We should have and we should hold to a high view of scripture that it is only through the word of god that we can actually know god listen to john 17 3 this is eternal life that they know you the only true god in jesus christ whom you have sent especially alongside of john 1 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god you take that alongside of hebrews 4 12 and 13 the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
That is talking about this word. That's verse 12. Listen to verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. We must hold to sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the means to know God. Scripture alone must be how we understand all things of God, including the history of how he works with humanity. We must hold to a high view of Scripture. But a literal view? No. As an example, listen to Isaiah 59.1. There God tells us, Behold, the hand... Is the hand of Yahweh so short that it cannot save? Nor is his ear so dull that it can't hear? Are we supposed to take that verse literally? That God the Father has an arm and an ear. How are we supposed to do that when we're told in John 4.24 that God is spirit? That Isaiah verse is what is called anthropomorphic language. It is God condescending to explain himself in a means that makes him more understandable to us. It's the same thing that a parent will do with a small child, using baby talk to them so they can understand things. This is God assigning to himself qualities that we have and we will understand. And In fact, even dispensationalists themselves don't actually literally interpret Scripture. Dispensationalists now say that you're to take the meaning of Scripture literally unless it doesn't make sense to you. Then you don't. But once that literal hermeneutic is applied, it leads to the fourth feature which surrounds the last dispensation, the kingdom, the end times events. They even have really cool charts for all of this. It starts with the rapture. And by the way, the rapture is biblical. It's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. But it never says when that is going to happen, except at the return of Christ. But according to dispensational theology, the rapture is then followed by seven years of tribulation. And that's followed by the second coming of Christ. And then that's followed by the millennium. And then we enter into the eternal state. These ideas all come from a literal hermeneutic, a literal understanding of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. In seeing literal timetables within these two books for the end times or eschatology. This theological understanding gained much popularity, by the way, at the same time as the false great awakening under Finney. And what followed next, after Darby came up with, with this, was annual prophecy update conferences that were held nationwide in the early 1900s. But the most important reason the dispensationalism became so popular was because of the Schofield Reference Bible, a Bible that was named for Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, who used dispensationalism as the framework for that wildly popular Bible. But did you notice in all these things, the thing that I didn't say was the driving force behind the dispensational theological understanding. Did you notice what those conferences that were wildly popular held annually, what they were not centered on? Did you take notice of what was not the framework for the Schofield Reference Bible? 
Christ. And you may be thinking, well, that's just a given in all those things. But the things of Christ are not Christ. Do you not understand there are those that love church who don't love Christ? They love the programs. They love the people. They love the fun events. But they have no concern for the one that they say has redeemed them for their sins from their, by, the, by his blood. And there are those that love theology. They spend their entire lives digging into the nitty-gritty minutia of the original language who have no love for Christ. N.T. Wright is one of those men. Make no mistake about it. If you're not enthralled by the one that John hears in verse 10 from our text today, if you are not captivated by him, then all of your theology, all of your end time schemes will fail you. And you may very well end up as John does in verse 17, on his face like a dead man. But if Christ is not your all in all, you will not hear him tell you at that moment, fear not. You may at that moment and for the rest of eternity be facing the wrath of the one that you have thought so little of for so long. Listen to how important that one is to the one who is writing this letter. Listen to verses 10 and 11. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrga, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And there, 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 in verses 10 and 11, there is the specific command given to John. A command that was given him, much like the command that was given to Ezekiel, as told to us in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 2. Write in a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches. And he heard a voice like a trumpet. Did the voice actually sound like a trumpet? What, what does that mean? What does that sound like? What is God trying to explain to us here? He's taking us back to the Old Testament. Moses recorded hearing a voice of God like a trumpet as well. Listen to Exodus 19. So it happened on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That's verse 16. And in verse 16, we're given an understanding of what it is like to meet God. Because if you've ever been in a natural event, like an F5 tornado or a major earthquake or even a forest fire, you will then, you know this insignificance that these people felt at that moment. The awe and the shock that they were experiencing. In verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All that lightning, the thunder, the loud trumpet sound, those weren't God. They were creation's reaction to being in his presence. Listen to verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder, and Yahweh 
came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In that encounter with God, the voice of God is not directly equated to being a trumpet. It's equated with thunder. But in both cases, we are meant to understand the sheer otherness of the God that was descending on the mountain, the utter holiness of the God that was speaking to his creation. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a scroll what you have seen. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, and Laodicea. And how often, when we read verses 10 and 11, is our minds, are our minds captivated by what John meant? By being in the Spirit. Or how often are our minds captivated by what day is the Lord's day? Is that Saturday or does he mean Sunday? We will completely skip over that which is important. The reason that this message has any importance for background stuff that captivates our imagination. Those things that we feel qualified to argue with other humans on this level about. John heard God. And he was told, write a message down and deliver it. That means that what God has to say, it's important. It has significance. Is the day that God spoke the important thing here? Is what John meant when he said, I was in the Spirit, is that the important thing in these verses? God desires us to get Genesis 1-1 right. In the beginning, God. The same message of John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is the book of Revelation filled with prophecy and apocalyptic illusions? Yes. But the entire Bible, every single word of this Bible is prophetic in that it's all about that single thing that is supposed to captivate our minds and our imagination and our hearts. Not end times prophecy, not schemes or programs or theological understandings concerning what it is that God told John to write down. That was never the intention of God. And what he's telling John, any more than it was for the prophet Ezekiel, what was said to John, the revelation that was given to him is much like the revelation that was given to Ezekiel. And what is said is secondary in importance. What is told to us is only important because the one that is saying it. Listen to the lead-in to the revelation given to Ezekiel. Because there's a correlation between John and Ezekiel. God speaks directly to both of these men. They were both given message to pass along to the church. And in both instances, here and in Ezekiel, God emphasizing what it is that's important to us. In both instances, before the meaning is given to us, the one speaking, the one who makes the message have meaning and importance is emphasized. So grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ezekiel with me, chapter 1.
chapter 1 of Ezekiel, verse 1. Now it happened in the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was, on, was by the river Chebar among the exiles, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. Sounds a lot what, like what John had to say in verse 10. Both of these men were exiled the day that the message was given to them. Verse 2. And then on the fifth of the month, of the, first of the fifth year of King Joachim's exile, the word of Yahweh came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of Chaldeans by the river Chebar. And there the hand of Yahweh came upon him. And I looked, and behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light all around it. And in its midst, something like the gleam of glowing metal in the midst of fire. And within it, there were figures with the likenesses of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And then Ezekiel goes on to describe these four angelic beings. Beings much like that which is told to us in Revelation 4 as well. Verses 6 through 25 describe them. But then he sees something much more important. Drop down to verse 26. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something in the likeness of a throne, like sapphire stone in appearance. And upon the likeness of the throne, high up was the likeness of one with the appearance of a man. And then I saw from his appearance of his loins and upward something like the gleam of glowing metal with an appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something with the appearance of fire. And there was a radiance all around him as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the radiance all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And I saw this and I fell on my face. And I heard the sound of a voice speaking. And that's how Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1 begins. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. The same thing that captivated John, that caused him to turn to the voice. Then I turned to see that voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I, said, I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 12. He heard a voice that was majestic, that we are told was like a horn. The same voice that captivated Ezekiel. This is what God desires us to get right. Because as much as those four angelic beings in Ezekiel sound strange, and as much as the things that we are going to be told about later in the book of Revelation are strange, the thing that God desires us to get right, to have our minds captivated by, the thing that captivated both Ezekiel and John was the one that was sitting on the throne. The one that is speaking to John from behind him. John will be given a vision later, much like Ezekiel did. After the direct messages of chapter 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation, God will then pass on to John an even more precise message. But before he does that, before he gives him that revelation, he once again, again reveals what it is that is supposed to captivate John. What it is, the thing that is supposed to captivate our heart and mind. Again, after the warnings of chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, God has a specific message that he passes on to John. But listen how he begins that message. Listen to Revelation chapter 4, 
After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing in the, open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, place take, much, must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and, and in, a, in Sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like the emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, much like that of Ezekiel. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had the face like a man, and the fourth creature was that like a flying eagle. And just in there, just like in verse 10 of chapter 1, our minds seem to get drawn to the wrong thing. There we will argue, conjecture about that door that is open in heaven. What does that mean? That has to be the rapture of the church. Or we'll theorize who and what those thrones are all about. That has to be the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We'll have our minds captivated by those four beings who resemble the four beings of Ezekiel. They're strange, they're majestic, they're awesome. But they're just created beings. And they have the same message for us. Do not be captivated by anything that less than what you should have your hearts and your minds captivated by. Listen to what they say. Verse 8 of chapter 4. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes and within, around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. This, it's to our shame, it's to our detriment that we don't wonder at this. As amazing as the four beings are that both John and Ezekiel saw are, and they are amazing. They're awesome. They're awful. They're terrifying in their nature and their being. And they have a single message for us. Be amazed at the one who created us. The one who is holy who was, the one who is holy, who is, and the one who is holy, who is to come. Be captivated by him. John hears a commanding voice, the voice of the lover of his soul, and he turns around, and there he sees seven lampstands. What he sees are what we know as menorahs. Menorahs are not a Jewish invention. They're the lampstand of God, the one that he gives great description for the construction of in Exodus chapter 25 and 37. 
And seeing those seven lampstands must have been a shock to John when he turned around. Couldn't have been what he was expecting to see. But they are not the things that captivates his imagination. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head was, and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. Verses 13 through 16. Do you realize that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that describes Jesus for us? There's no other book in the Bible that does that. None of the Gospels describe him. None of them say, this is what he looked like. Only the revelation of Jesus Christ does this. And what are we supposed to think of this description? I mean, what is John desiring us to know about the one that is speaking to him from this description? That he is holy. That he is other. That he is magnificent. And that you cannot separate his attributes from his essence. But the most important thing that we're supposed to glean from this description is completely overlooked many times. We are supposed to understand the intimacy of the one that John saw in relationship with the churches, which those lampstands represent. He's in the midst of them. He's not hovering over them. He's not standing against them. He's in the midst of them. And in his hands are the angels of each of them. He has them in the palm of his hand. And saints, this is your God. He is so other than you that he can only be described as holy. He's so other than us that this wild description given here is fitting of him. And yet, and yet, and yet, he loves you to such a degree that he has his spirit living inside of you. And he surrounds his saints, his church. And the one that John sees here is none other than Jesus the Christ. And we know this because of the title that is given to him, that he was like the Son of Man. Son of Man? Son of Man was the way that Jesus most frequently described himself in the Gospels. The Son of Man, that was his favorite term for himself. And the use of this term here, this, it ties this book, what is about to be seen, back in with the same man that Daniel saw, as recorded for us in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. There, Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Son of Man is a title. 
and it's a title of humility. This is the meaning of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Jesus stepping down out of eternity into time, which is why that term son of man is also a title of humanity because he, God, took on flesh. And do you realize as much as we long for that moment when we will be set free from the confines of this flesh, Jesus reveled in being human. He loved being human because he was fulfilling that eternal covenant by becoming human. And because he was human, he was able to have relationships with mere mortals in his humanity. And unlike us, he knew no sin. And for this reason, he could marvel at the wonder of this perfectly created being called man. And the Son of Man is also a, a title of deity. At that mock trial of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders, the last recorded statement that we have of Jesus, when they charged him to tell them whether he was the Son of God or not, his answer to them was this, You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, Matthew 26, 64. And it was this answer that caused them to rent their garments, claim he is blasphemed by equating himself with God. Why this description here? Is this really how he looked? Are we supposed to take this literally as the dispensationalists will tell us? No. There's a reason for this description. God is tying this last book of the Bible in with the prophets of old and the prophecies given to them. Because they all speak of this one who walks among those seven lampstands. The one who has hair that is described as the ancient of days in, in Daniel 7. Whose eyes are reminiscent of the eyes that Daniel tells us of in Daniel 10.6. Whose eyes are full of judgment as told to us in Revelation 19.12. And the gleaming bronze of his feet reminiscent of Daniel 10.6 and Ezekiel 1.7. His voice is said, is said to be of many waters. In verse 15, this is the same thing that is said in Psalm 29, verse 3. The sword from his mouth, reminiscent of, of Isaiah 11:4, which says that he will strike the earth with the sword of his mouth. Same thing that he warns us of in chapter 2 of this book, when Christ proclaims wrath on those within his church who are disobedient, where he says in verse 16, therefore repent, but if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against you with the sword of my mouth. Same sword that we're told that he does, that he takes up against the Christ-denying world in Revelation 19.15. We can never be sure if Isaiah or Ezekiel actually saw a man like this or not. But we can be sure that, Jesus, or I'm sorry, that John had seen the person of Jesus. He walked with him for three years, saw him after his resurrection, and he knew that when he turned around, the person that he saw was none other than the risen, ascended Christ. Do you realize that he didn't describe him for us there? He didn't say, I turned around and there he was, same dark curly hair, same brown eyes, 
Same figure, same thin guy. He could have. And for those to have no issue with depictions of Christ, either in print or on a screen, this should be a warning to you. Because God knows our hearts. He knows that our hearts are an idol factory. And he knew that any description of the risen king, he knew that that would become an idol. And for this reason, he chose to use the language of the prophets in describing the Son of Man who was standing in the midst of the churches. And what was the response of that disciple that Jesus loved when he saw the one that loved him? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Funny thing, this is the same response that Daniel had when he saw the Lord in Daniel 8, 16 and 19. Same response by Ezekiel. John fell at his feet like a dead man. Remember, this is the disciple that Jesus made as the caregiver of his mother. The man who walked with Christ. The man that was leaning against the breast of Christ during the Last Supper. But here, now, something is different. Because the Jesus that he sees here is the same Jesus that is coming back soon. In judgment. And which is what caused John to fall at his feet. And brings us to verses 17 through 20. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last. This is reminiscent to that leper that came to Christ to be healed. That told him that you could heal me if you wanted to. The leper that Christ touched and then healed. And the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And how often in just these verses from today, have we been shown that we have allowed the periphery things of God to captivate our minds instead of the central figure and message of this revelation? We get captivated by the day that John got this message on. We get captivated by what he meant by being in the Spirit, by those lampstands, by the stars, by the angels. John was not. He had a holy reverence for this one, the first and the last. And he fell at his feet like a dead man. Meaning that at the appearance of Christ, the sheer magnificence and awesomeness of it, it caused John to lose control of his body and become like a dead man in his presence. You have to be thinking, if this is the lover of his soul, if this is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who died to save John, should John then feel this way about Christ? Yes. Because this is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the one who is coming to execute, execute his swift justice against sinners. Jesus himself told us this in Luke 12, 5. I will show you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, 
has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the funny thing is, is we don't think that Jesus is talking about himself there. But he is. In that moment, when we stand before Christ, we, like John, will fear the reality of the awesome, just judgment of the Lamb of God. And at the same time, this Holy One, because He is the lover of your soul, even though the fear that John felt when he saw Him was justifiable, it was not needed. And what John saw there is the same Jesus that all humanity we see will see when He returns the judge, the living and the dead. And it terrified Him. But then Jesus comforted John by telling him why he should not fear. Because he is the first and the last. He's God. No less than the Father or the Spirit. He's the living one who died and lives forevermore. And the language there in that verse doesn't convey living forevermore after the resurrection. The, the, the language there means being alive for all eternity. And the reason that Jesus tells John, don't fear, is founded on the fact that there was not a single instance in his life, even when he was here on this earth, that he did not possess the keys of death and Hades. Not a single instance. Your salvation has always been secure in Christ because he always had them. Even when Satan thinks that he owns and has dominion, well, Satan may have a secondary key to death, but Christ, he has always been the master key. And since he is the same one that has released us from our sin by his blood, we can have no fear when he returns the judge, the living and the dead. And then we come to verse 19. Verse 19 is not the key to this book, but it is, however, a literary pattern that will be used by God for the visions given to John throughout the book. We will use verse 19, and we will apply that pattern to the visions given John to help us understand what their meaning is. And then Jesus then gives us the meaning of the seven stars and the seven lampstands, and in both of them, we should wonder. Wonder? Do you realize that there hasn't been a single personal pronoun used in this letter indicating that it's written to you? But at least twice in this opening chapter, God tells us who this letter is for. The church. And if you're a saint, if God has redeemed your soul, then you have been made a member of his universal church. But do you see that exalted, that most exalted of positions, being a member of the universal church of such importance in your life that you will seek to commit yourself to a local church? Because Christ was standing in the midst of the churches. He's not standing alongside of individuals. He's not carrying you on the seashore so that you can look back and see only one set of footprints as he's carried you along. 
His care, his concern is for the church. How about you? Do you understand the importance of the church? Do you understand that being a member of the church is not primarily for you? That it's not a place to be entertained in? It's not a place that you should esteem as long as I get something out of it. This is the body of Christ here in this realm. And us individuals, we are living and breathing for the sole purpose of bringing glory to him. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we even know that we are his? If we, like John, should not fear. Well, there is a single marker given by Jesus by which you can know you are his. It's clear. It's distinctive. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. And later, that apostle of love once again picks up on the marker of salvation in 1 John 3. There we're told, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have known love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. And you may be asking yourself, okay, but who's my brother? Is it every Christian? Is that whom I'm supposed to love? Is that the one, are they the ones that I'm supposed to do the one another's of the Bible with? How am I supposed to know who my brother is? You go to the Bible. You go to Matthew 18. And you look there. Because it's a great clarification on this issue. Since Jesus the one is the one who commands you, love your brother, he must be the one who also tells you who he means by that. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, There he clarifies who our brother is. He begins there with this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's verse 15. And there, that is how we are to deal with people. Not just within the church, but all people. But here it's specific in this instance. And it goes on. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So if someone is sinned against you, or if you're having issues with someone within the body, the thing to do, go and talk to them. Not your spouse, not your friend, not your coworker. You go to that person, and if they refuse to listen to you, Then you bring someone along with you to verify what is being said. And the person that you bring along with you is nothing more than a witness to your heart that you are desiring to have this issue resolved. And this is important when we see verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. The church. 
a local body of believers united under the banner of Christ. There are things in these verses that are not stated implicitly but must be in place for these verses to make sense. First, these people must be part of a covenant community. Otherwise, who cares if the person is treated like a Gentile or not? And the church as a body must also have authority over its members as well. Again, if this weren't the case, then why would it matter if the situation was taken to the church or not? And finally, finally, being part of the church, being a member of the church, according to Jesus, says it should matter. So much so that the shunning of an unrepentant person is seen by Jesus Christ to be the single worst thing that could happen to that person. How does that resonate with us? How would you feel if you were shunned by this body? Would it matter to you? The church matters to the Lord. This revelation of Jesus is written to his church. God ends the prelude to the letters to the churches by stressing the importance of the church to John, that place where Christ chose to be in the midst of, the entity, the single entity that he designed and covenants with. And we, we will esteem Christ when we esteem his church. And the reason for this is that this is where his people and his spirit reside in this realm. If we claim that Christ has captivated our imagination, then we have to be enthralled with this body here. We're not to be captivated by the church, but we are to be enthralled with it. Because he, the one who was and is and is to come, he is in the midst of the church. And he is the one who holds the angel of the churches in his hands. Again, not the church and not the angels. Him. He is what must be central in our hearts. He, he has to be the one that has captivated our imagination and our hearts and our minds. And finally, now, after giving us this warning, after revealing to us that which should captivate our imagination, telling us of the importance of his church to him, now, with our hearts and our minds redirected back to true north, with our Lord being the one that is captivating our imaginations, with us finally understanding that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ and not an end-time scheme. Now we are finally prepared for the letters that he has written to his church. Let's pray.